You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Lisa Unger on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Last Girl Ghosted. And if you love thrillers the way I do, and I know uh, people hear me say that all the time, this is a must-have for your uh, for your fall uh, reading stack that you know that the weather's changing uh, a little bit or hopefully it will soon and uh, you know we look for a, a good book to curl up with and this is a must-have for sure uh, Lisa welcome to the show oh thanks for having me Hank it's so great to be here I'm so excited to have you uh, Lisa we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller Oh, that's such a good question. I um, I actually do not remember a time in my life where I didn't think of myself as a writer. I have been writing since I was a kid. And of course, before that, I was a reader. All writers are readers first, right? And in my case, my mom was a librarian. So I... Our home was always just filled with books. There are these huge bookcases every place where we lived. We moved around a lot. And um, I there was, like, no censorship at all. If I, could, <laughs> if I could reach it, I could read it. And now my mom's like, oh, I, I, I thought it was going over your head. <laughs> I was like, it wasn't. <laughs> And so I was just, I would just read and read and read. And I, um, my family moved around a lot, you know, so I always, I always was the new kid. I was always like kind of feeling like on the outside looking in and I knew that like, no matter what, like no matter how I wound up, if it was like alone in a lunchroom or like nobody to play with on the playground. As long as I had a book, I had some place to be, you know, I had a place where I could go like an escape hatch and then I guess, you know, there was a moment, and I'm not sure what that moment was, but there's, I think for all writers, there's a moment where you kind of ask yourself, wow, you know, if I can be so moved by the words and stories and characters of other people, could I similarly move somebody with my words? And I don't remember the moment when I asked that question, um, but I just remember always wanting to write and always wanting to either disappear into the story that somebody else was telling or to the one that I wanted to tell. Lisa, you have carved out a place uh, in, uh, in in fiction, in the, uh, the mystery thriller uh, genres uh, it, that, that you uh, have kind of firmly placed your flag. And, and this is something that when, when you're looking for that type of read, you know that a Lisa Unger book is, is going to, you know, hit all the notes that you're looking for. Do Do you remember the first book, or maybe it was an author, or maybe it was a series that kind of turned you on to the genre and that made you a fan of uh, of mysteries and thrillers? Yeah, I mean, I think as a kid, you know, I always I always had a very 
I always had a very dark and twisted imagination. Like I don't always just remember being really fascinated by things that I knew I wasn't supposed to be fascinated by. And, you know, I had a moment, um, it, you know, beyond that, when I was older, when I was 15, um, I, a, a girl I knew was abducted and murdered in the town where mm. I grew up in New Jersey. And it was a very, um, you know, it was a very dark, horrible moment, of course, for, for the town. It was a terrible tragedy for this young girl who I knew and her family. Um, but it was also a moment that kind of divides my life for me. Like, in some senses, the world was one thing before that and another thing after that occurrence. And so I think that in in many ways that that formed me as a writer. Um, you know, the questions that I wanted to ask about what had happened, nobody wanted to hear a young girl asking those questions and certainly nobody wanted to give her those answers. And so I was able, always able to sort of bring those questions to the page, you know, to try to sort of parse out what, what makes people do what they do. And then I came across a book uh, at an inappropriately early age, probably never should have read it, but In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Oh, yeah. Right. Which is not, of course, fiction. It's actually the first true crime book ever written. And what happened to me in the reading of that book is that I realized that you could write about the darkest part of human nature and you could do so with compassion and with this sort of breathless beauty that you could look into the darkness and what was there was not always horrifying and that in fact it could be illuminating and so it was truly that book i think that gave me permission to be who i wanted to be as a writer I think that um, a lot of people look at crime fiction or, or, or true crime fiction or thrillers and mysteries, and all they see is the darkness there and the you know the 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 extent that humans can go to to you know mess up other people's lives or uh, you know mess up society. But what what gets overlooked a lot is the the heroic nature of everyday people and and that's what a lot of mysteries and thrillers really shine a light on is that that the yes in one sense that you know any anyone around us could do horrible things but in the same light anyone around us could be heroic and 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 do something that surprises us for the better right that's very true and I think Lee Child kind of famously gives this talk about thrillers, and he he says that he feels like the first story ever told was a thriller. And, you know, it was an oral story told around a campfire, and it was about how, you know, the, the hunter bagged, you know, the beast or you know, the group survived the long winter or how, you know, the underdog um, defeated the powerful foe. And they were stories that were told for one purpose, and that is to make us feel braver in the dark. 
And I think that a lot of people turn, a lot of writers turn to crime fiction. I know that I certainly did turn to crime fiction as a way to metabolize and to order the darkness and the chaos that I perceive in the world. And honestly, I think that's why so many people turn to crime fiction as well. You know, because in within the pages of a, a crime fiction novel, you know, there's a there's a solid beginning, a middle and an end. You know, the sort of um, the question of, of what is right and what is wrong is is not often blurred, although, you know, some of the best fiction crime fiction, do, you know, does, in fact, blur those lines. But there's always some type of justice served, even if it may not be the justice that you were um that you were looking for. And uh, I think that that's why people turn to it because, you know, obviously that's not so in the real world. Justice is not always served and, and crimes go unsolved and questions don't have answers. And I think that that's a, you know, a very frightening place where we all dwell and, and why we find in the darkest times that, you know, we experience together as a culture, you know, the sale of mystery and thrillers goes goes through through the roof. Lisa, um, a lot of people have these uh, these uh, early desires to be a writer and to be a storyteller, and uh, you know, I've, I've had lots and lots of conversations with people where they knew from an early age that this was what they were going to do. They might not have known how they would get there. Uh, you know, or what, uh, you know, what path that would look like. And and uh, I've said this before that um, there's been a, a very, very few people that I've talked to. They do exist, but but they've been few um, that knew they wanted to be a writer. And it was a singular pursuit. Everything that they had done in life was to to forward that dream. Um, what happens most of the time with with people is it's sort of a circuitous route that you know, we we want we have this desire, and then we we wind up, uh, you know, starting a family, paying bills, and all of this life happens in the midst of it. And then writing has a way of coming back around and and bringing us back in. Um, mm-hmm. Which one of those was true for you? Oh, yeah, kind of, kind of both in this weird way. So I, you know, so I had this, you know, this desire to write, and I had. You know, a lot of teachers um, in my my early life in middle school and high school who recognized that, you know, I had ability and they they nurtured that and they, you know, made sure that I was aware that I did, in fact, have, you know, some, you know, small amount of talent. And, um, you know, but my, you know, when I would bring this question up to my father, like, you know, oh, is this something that I can do for a living? You know, his resounding answer was, of course, no. You know, he's an engineer, and he was like, no, that people don't do that. You That's not what real grown-ups do. Yeah, you have to get a real job. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so... You know, even though that's all I wanted to do, and my mom, you know, librarian, she also knew that I was a writer. She's like, well, you know, listen, you know, listen to your father, but don't, don't really listen to your father. You know, like she wanted me to get a job too, but she, she kind of figured I would find my way. And so, you know, I did go to, I did go to college to, at, at, you know, majoring in, in writing and literature. And most of my education was, completely focused on on writing of all of all different kinds from journalism to poetry to playwriting you know I went to NYU and to the new school 
and all of my focus was on become was becoming writer. And then, of course, when it was time for me to graduate, you know, I really just did not, even though I started my first novel when I was 19, I started my first novel at the new school. I mean, I really just did not have the, the confidence to pursue that life. I mean, I didn't really, I had this idea in my head that it wasn't possible, you know, and the constant, like, sort of doubt of the self-doubt of the writer, you know, not good enough, not as good as others, etc. You know, and I thought, well, I'll just go into publishing because that was like the closest I could I could think of of pursuing my dream without actually getting any skin in the game. And so my first job uh, was in publishing um, at, in publicity. And unfortunately, you know, I was really, really good at my job. And so my job just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the time I spent writing got smaller and smaller and smaller until, you know, I reached a point in my life where I had this big corporate job, was living in the city, I was making, you know, a certain amount of money. And the time, and I just wasn't writing at all. And so I had this kind of epiphany at one point where I realized like everything about my life was wrong. I was with the wrong guy. Um, of course, I was in my 20s, so everybody's with the wrong guy in their 20s, right? <laughs> <laughs> Most of us are, anyway. And I was devoting 110% of myself to a job that I did not love. And that the only thing I ever wanted to do with my life, I wasn't doing at all. And so I decided that I was like, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, I was going to have to look back at myself and go, you know what? You never even tried. You never even tried to do it. And so that I figured I could live with spectacular kind of crash and burn failure, but I wasn't going to be able to live with a slow fade to nothing. And so I did, you know, the only thing you really need to do to be a writer. And that's to write, you know, I actually started writing every day. And from that point, I was able to finish the book that I started when I was 19. Um, I did eventually finish that book. It took me about a year and a half of like staying in on the weekends and writing in the morning and writing on my commute to work to finish that first novel. The one I started when I was 19, and I finished it when I was 29. Wow. Yeah. So, so you were working in publishing? Yes. For, you, you know, many years, like 10 years, like that whole time, my whole twenties. So... And, no, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, so I finished this novel and I actually still didn't know what to do with it because I thought, well, you know, everybody in publishing is probably like a closet writer. I was definitely a closet writer. Nobody knew I wrote, you know, you're not going to be like on the road with William Gibson or, you know, sitting at the dinner table with Tom Clancy and being like, oh, I, I'm a writer, too. Yeah. OK, sure you are. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of kept that part of myself hidden. And then, um, you know, I had this other, another big moment in my life. I wound up going to um, uh, Key West to visit a friend. And while I was at Sloppy Joe's in Key West, I met the right guy. Um, and, you know, I know usually the relationships that start at Sloppy Joe's are a little bit more short term but you know my husband and jeff and i 
we'll celebrate just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary congratulations thank you and so i um you know i had finished this manuscript i was in key west i met the the planets aligned right it was like love at first sight and i just you know within six months he had proposed we had both sold our homes and quit our big corporate jobs we decided that he would go wherever he got the best job and I was going to give myself one year to sell the novel that I had written and to write another one. And we kind of just went for broke and moved to Florida and I sent my manuscript to my five top choice agents at that time. And I got signed on pretty quickly by Elaine Markson and she brokered my first deal with St. Martin's Press. Two book deal. That is amazing. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. What Death Taught Tarrant by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find what Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found the story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. 
What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. Uh, Lisa, one question that I have about that time that you're yeah. working in publishing, what and before you had this sort of epiphany, you know, that that you were going to do what you needed to do to to be a writer. Yeah. But before that epiphany happened and you're you're working in publishing and for a lot of um book lovers and and people that like to think of themselves as as writers or right. uh, you know working in that industry might be enough for some people and it might be just the thing to scratch the itch yeah. for for a lot of people probably um yeah. did it ever feel like this was a place that that you know what i'm i'm close enough i'm 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 actually around creative people i'm i'm you know i'm a a small cog in the in the machine that makes books you know mm -hmm. come to reality you know and and I'm I'm okay if if this is where I if this is the the role I play in it that did you ever kind of come you know face to face with um that decision that you know this could be enough or 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 is is that kind of what caused the epiphany that you know this was this was ultimately not going to be enough yeah, I mean, I knew it wasn't enough, you know, from the beginning. You know, I I knew that I wanted to write, that I need that I needed to write, and the whole time that I wasn't writing, I have to say that there was kind of a white noise in the back of my mind, you know, reminding me like, hey, this is what you are, this is what you always intended to do. When are you going to get back to it? And I um, and I always kind of had that, and it was always a, it was a dream that never went away. And publishing definitely did not scratch that itch. What it did, though, was give me permission to be a writer because you know I had that idea in my head that you know I wasn't good enough. First of all, and second of all, you know I just had my dad's voice in my head. That's not a job. People don't do it. But after ten years in or almost ten years in publishing you look around and you go, you know what? People do do this for a living. <laughs> it's not easy, but they do it. And if they can do it, then I think I could do it too. And, you know, I feel like what publishing did for me was that it, I, I learned so much in those years in, in publicity and in publishing, even though being in publishing did not help me get published. My publisher, the one I worked for for many years, um, did not publish my, <laughs> my first book. Um, but uh, even though now I think it's a different matter, like uh, it's like a trend now that people from publishing start start writing. Um, but at the time, it wasn't so much of a trend, and it just gave me it, it taught me so much about the industry. And I knew that when I got my first publishing contract. I knew in a lot of writers who first get published don't know that all it is is an open door. You know, like some people think that that moment, like I'm going to get published and it's a windfall and it's like the big, you know, moment. It's like the end of the story, you know, the happily ever after. But in fact, it's just the beginning. And that <laughs> there's a lot of work that lies ahead, isn't there? Absolutely. You better roll up your sleeves and uh, check your ego at the door and get to work. Um, and like some people do come right out of the gate huge and stay huge and that's true but it's not as as common as you know um, 
how people succeed at almost anything else. You start at the bottom and you hopefully work your way to at least the middle. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, you know, looking through your back catalog, um, you've you've published a book or two since that time um and i think now last girl ghosted by my count is this your 20th novel it's actually well i guess you could could, you could technically call it my 20th it's really my 19th full-length novel i just finished uh i just wrote the end on my 20th novel um, but last girl ghosted is number 19 you might um i i did uh earlier this year publish a collection of short stories which when they it's a a linked collection of short stories that um i guess if you you know they're they build on each other so i guess if you were to link them all together you might conceivably call that a novel but that's not the way i conceived of it um so yeah last girl ghosted is number 19. that is amazing um you you talked a minute ago about that that trajectory that um, uh, you know that happens with a lot of writers is that you you land the contract and you've got a book that's going to come out to the world and now the work begins and you know for most authors I think there's a there's an absolute trajectory that happens a book comes out and you gain an audience and then hopefully with the next book you know that audience tells friends and then you you know your audience grows and grows and then you know at some point. Um, one of your books uh, kind of goes viral and and you um, you know start seeing uh, response from readers and sales that that are maybe bigger than than you can put your finger on, you know and 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 trace that trajectory. Um, was was that uh, was there a point in your writing career over these nineteen or twenty books, however you want to look at it, um that you see where your audience kind of took on a life of its own and uh, got bigger than than you could, um, you know, say that you grew the audience? Yeah. So and this interest, it's an interesting question. So when I first got my first when I got my first publishing contract with St. Martin's Press, it was like a very small uh, contract. It was like I think it was like a nickel and a cheese sandwich or something like that. Maybe <laughs> maybe not that much. My friend Ace Atkins is like, wow, you got a cheese sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> And um, <laughs> so it was, you know, a very small advance. And so I knew that, you know, I knew that that meant it was going to be published small, you know, and and I knew that because I had worked in uh, in the in the industry for so long. So I kind of knew yeah. what that meant. I was like, well, OK, so we're just going to, you know, get to work on this. And then it got some early, you know, it got some early attention and it did pretty well. And then the next book and the next book. Um, there was growth every single. There was growth every single book, which you know is what you kind of want to see. But it wasn't like huge growth. You know, it was like my grandmother like told her friends, and they started buying it. <laughs> so like that. So it kind of, you know, it kind of grew and grew a little bit at a time. And I, in the middle of the third and fourth book in my contract with St. Martin's, I, I signed another contract with them uh, after the first two books were done. And in between the second and third book, uh, the third and fourth book in that second contract, I wrote another book. And this is like before I had a daughter and, you know, all that I could actually write another book in between the two books that had been contracted. And it was a book that kind of came out of nowhere. And it was like, 
you know, had to be written, it demanded to be written. So I wrote it. And when I turned it into my editor at St. Martin's, your publisher has this thing, you know, they have the thing that's called um, the right of first refusal, which means they have the right to turn down your stuff before anybody else. Right. <laughs> so, so I turned this book into my editor and she read it and she was like, you know, this is just not for us. And I was like, oh. She goes, I just want you to keep writing your series. And I was like, well, no, I, I do too. I want to keep writing the series, but I also wrote this. And she said, you know, I just, it doesn't work. It's not, it's not going to work for me. And I was like, okay. So that's like a bad day, right? In publishing, right. Like, that's a really bad day. So um, luckily I had an amazing agent, uh, Elaine Marks, and she was my agent for 13 years until she had to retire for medical reasons. And she, um, a couple of years ago, she sadly passed away. Um, but she was like my champion and she was like a real writer's agent. And she said, you know what? That's fine. You finish the book in your contract and I'm, we're going to move this someplace else um, because it's special and we're going to find a place for it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> course like crying at the time and right. uh, and she she was like well, don't worry we're gonna you know we're gonna do that and I was like okay because she's always supremely confident she was like a grand dame of publishing and she always like knew exactly what to say and exactly what to do and um and so she did in fact broker another much bigger deal for that book with Random House um, and that book, Beautiful Eyes, which is the first book I published under my married name, Lisa Unger, that book, Beautiful Eyes, was my first New York Times bestseller. And, you know, of course it hasn't, it hasn't been, you know, just a completely up and up and up trajectory. I mean, I also don't think that that's the most common way that people build a career. You know, one book does well, and another book maybe doesn't do as well, and then another book does even better, and blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of the way it's been for me. Like, it's been a lot, you know, it's been a lot of, you know, hills and valleys. And I think that probably most writers would say that about their careers. Most people with a long career, like the one that I have, which I feel very blessed to still be writing, to still be, you know, putting my books out there, especially since they're all different. You know what I mean? It's not like yeah. I have written one kind of book and it's a series and it's built and built and built and built and built until, you know, it's this iconic thing. Like that's just not never the writer that I've been. So every book is different. So the fact that I still do have continuous growth and I still do have people that been, have been reading me since the book Angel Fire which I started when I was 19 and published when I was 30, you know, like some people who are reading me have been reading since that book. And that means a lot. That means a lot to me. So I'm very grateful for the kind of career that I have had that has allowed me to write what I want to write and grow in front of my readers. Sure. Sure. Lisa, um, I'm fascinated with the beginnings of things, um, and uh, I've, I've said this a, a number of times on the show that um, you know, at the, you know, your new book is "Last Girl Ghosted." That we're specifically talking about today. Um, at one point in 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 your life, "Last Girl Ghosted" did not exist in any form or fashion. There was nothing about it that had been dreamed up by you. 
and then either um you know the character of of Ren who we we learn about in the book uh, either walks onto the stage of your mind and and then you you know ask yourself well who is who is this and what is she about and and then you know you start tracking you know what's going on with her or maybe you're playing the what if game you know and what well what if there was uh someone who was a uh, you know, a, a, a podcaster and a columnist, and and then this thing happens, and then you know you start playing those games, and then you know whatever that moment of inspiration is, then in some form or fashion, Last Girl Ghosted does exist, and then it's your job as the writer to kind of excavate the story and dig it out and 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 bring it to the rest of the world. What is that first moment? of inspiration like for you when a new book is first being birthed? Yeah, so there's always something. There's always like one blast, right, of like just kind of inspiration. And it might be anything. It could be, you know, in some cases it's been a new story. Um, in some cases it's been like a line of poetry or a quote or um, even, a you know, a song. Um, and, you know, uh, usually what what happens is like that thing, whatever it is, kind of leads me to like a swath of research about something that I get kind of obsessed about. And um, then the best way I can describe it is if it connects with something larger that's going on with me, then I start to hear a voice or voices. And I uh, follow those voices through the manuscript. In this case, it was Ren. And the germ for, and I just recently, you know, because I always have to, you know, like you say, I, you know, I'm in that book for a year. I, I feel like the story's there. I'm just trying to find it, you know, I, and I write very much for the same reason that I read, you know, because I want to know what's going to happen to the characters living in my head. So I'm deep inside this manuscript kind of, you know, developing it, de listening to this character, trying to figure out what's going on with her life. And then there's a first draft and then there's a second and a third and a fifth <laughs> draft. And then finally about, you know, a year later, it's time to start talking about it. And that's when I really go, Oh, what, wow. What is this book about? Like, what did, <laughs> what did I write? So I know, I know for a fact that, um, this story started pro probably longer before I started writing it than, than usual. But I had a conversation with a young friend and she was talking about the, um, just the misery of, uh, of online dating, of like m modern dating. And she, you know, obviously when I, when I first started when I was dating 105 years ago <laughs> when I like even just when I right before I met my husband online dating had like just started to become a thing right like it, there were websites that you could go on and meet people and stuff and I had been on it and I had met a few people that way you know sort of underwhelming like didn't work type things and nothing scary or spooky or anything like that but just you know soulless and kind yeah. of you know, miserable. And, um, and so, but I knew that I do know people who have met their spouses, you know, from online dating and have successful, happy marriages. Um, but you know, my friend who I was talking to, she's much, much younger than I, um, I was, and she was talking to me about the apps specifically, how you just scroll and scroll and scroll through 
this endless possibility, this en these endless possibilities and choices. And that you always have this sense that if the person shows up and they're not who you want them to be, then you just can ghost them. You can just move away from that person, stop answering their texts, and never hear from or see that person ever again. You know, it's like the, the sort of loose tie connection that we are all very we're all very comfortable with right now like in social media which is another thing that comes up again and again for me in my work um and like you know once upon a time the dating pool was very very small you know it was like your village right and or it was your town you know and then it kind of you know it exponentially got bigger you know, as we moved into, you know, cities and the pool got bigger. And so there's no close tie connection. It's like you can't, you know, you're not going to meet somebody on Tinder, hook up with them, ghost them, and then wind up sitting next to their, your, their grandmother at church, right? <laughs> like that's not <laughs> the way of modern dating. There's no real world motivation for people to treat each other well. And um, there was another element from my last book, Confessions on the 745, um, the idea of the, of the sweetheart scam, which is a very common scam where people meet online and then um, the, you know, one person falls in love and the other person is a con artist and they wind up getting a bunch of money and stealing a bunch of things from those people. And the fact that it's so incredibly common that it happens all the time and they and these con artists they get away with it over and over and over again why because of shame people are ashamed that they fell for it and that they wanted love and found something else something dark something you know something terrible and so that was kind of the seed for those two things like those two ideas and then the research i did about how people are relating to each other now because of these apps and how you know how painful it is for people to be ghosted and you know um all the different things that are you know sort of commonplace now in this digital dating sphere and it was just a really good you know of course the book's not really about that necessarily but that was the germ but it's a great spring springboard to to launch you into what is the story because it's really about love, right? Yeah, it's really about right. all the ways we look for love, and what and what what is our what is our connection to people? What is our obligation to people? You know, especially now, like, you know, I wrote this I wrote this book during during the pandemic. It's not a pandemic book, but I was surprised when I read it again in the fi in the final drafts how present you know, this looming sense of doom and darkness is in Last Girl Ghosted. And I know that it leaked into the story from what I was feeling during the writing of it, you know, and it was like, you know, the essential theme of the book, I think is, you know, you don't, you have to stay, right? I mean, that that's yeah. really it. You don't get to go. Right? You don't get to walk away from people. You don't get to ghost them. You don't get to ghost this world and this life. You you have to stay and help. Everybody has to stay and help each other through this darkness. So that's kind of, you know, 
I mean, that's a little heavy, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the subject of the pandemic and, and making art, you know, when in the midst of this giant shared experience that we've all had, um, because uh, and, I, and I've asked several people you know, their thoughts on this. Um, do you think that we are going to start seeing a spate of pandemic thrillers or, you know, things that um, books that come out that that deal specifically with COVID and, and, you know, what some of the darker outcomes of, you know, everyone being locked down and, and that sort of thing? Um, because I'm going to be honest with you, when when I start seeing some of those books come out, um, I, I yeah. live through that. I, I don't necessarily want yeah. to read about it. But but what I do find interesting is, like you said in The Last Girl Ghosted, is that there's this this sort of underlying sense of dread that that comes across in the book and that that kind of comes from, you know, living through this experience. But um, but not being on the nose uh, about covid specifically, do, do you think that that that's how we're really going to see that that, uh, you know, uh, the art is generally influenced by covid, that, that the the feelings uh, of uh, kind of that that we uh you know at, as the humans that have lived through this that you know that it's not necessarily going to be about covid but about the feelings that came along with it yeah absolutely i mean that's a um there's a there's a lot of layers to that to that yeah. question and that 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 thought it's like i know some people who have decided they want to write a book about covid and i you know I, I, you know, supportive friend that I am, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you, you do that. <laughs> I will not be one of those people. I will not write a pandemic thriller. Although I could see where it's rife with possibility. Sure. I mean, like there's a million things that you could come up with, you know, um, with people on lockdown together. And certainly, you know, crime itself will change because of COVID. You know, like criminality always reflects society. So crime itself will change because of COVID. We don't know how, um, but we'll see, right? <laughs> it will right. It will become clear. And, um, you know, and of course, like, you know, as with Last Girl Ghosted, you know, like I, there, because I write the way I write, like so subconsciously, so organically, there's no way that the things I have experienced aren't going to find their way into the work. But at this time, I personally would not set a novel in the time of COVID. And I know um, for my readers or for readers in general, from what just what I hear anecdotally, they have no desire whatsoever to read about characters, you know, <laughs> navigating right. masks and restaurants and how to live your life. You know, like there's been far too much of it. And people want are at this time wanting more to escape from that than they are to understand and dwell in it. That may change later. It may be like right now is like all these World War II books. Like everybody's like every other book is about World War II. OK, so maybe now we want to hear about world war ii we want to learn yeah, but about it took us 80 years right <laughs> so you know there's just you know there's just not you know there's just not a lot for me to inspire and 
not only that, but it's not how the thing works for me. You know, I never, I'm not going to sit down and talk about, oh, I'm going to write a book about infidelity or, oh, I'm going to write a book about confidence games or, oh, I'm going to write a book about online dating. Like that's never how it works. It's all character driven, all plot flows from character. Um, and so how that's going to evolve over the years, what from this moment am I going to bring, you know, bring forward into my work in the years to come? There's no way to, there's no way to even know that for me right now. Yeah. Well, Last Girl Ghosted is on sale everywhere now when you're hearing this. Uh, in, and uh, we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for folks to find whether you like uh, to hold the paper in your hand and turn the pages or maybe on your Kindle or audio book. We're going to have links in the show notes uh, where you can grab it or go visit your local bookstore. And uh, let's keep bookstores uh, in business. Uh, I know they've had a, a hard time like everyone else has, but – uh, they've been hit especially hard, so please be sure to support your local bookstore. Um, Lisa, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do and, and uh, you know, uh, it, do a deep dive into your back catalog and, and all of this good stuff, where can they connect with you online? Well, you know, Hank, I'm such a hermit. You really can't find me online. <laughs> <laughs> This is a total lie. I am like so online, it's like ridiculous. <laughs> like any any of your plat any platform from you know from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram, I'm on way too much and often interacting in in real time. Unfortunately, now I'm also on TikTok, which is you know terrifying for everybody involved. And um, and then of course my website lisaunger.com is you know a full catalog of my work and links to like you say every bookseller um, and in of course your local bookseller is always or, or library is always a resource for my book and for any book that you are seeking. Excellent. We'll put links to all those places in the show notes. Uh, Lisa, this has been so much fun chatting. I love the new book. We're sending everyone to pick up a copy of it. Thank everything you. that you think you know um, about uh, everything is not what you uh, not what you expect at all. And that's what I love about a Lisa Unger book. Last Girl Ghosted, available everywhere now. Go grab it. Lisa, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. You're wonderful. I appreciate it so much. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. What in the name of Carl Sagan was he doing in the cemetery on Halloween? What was he thinking? He whirled, expecting the headless horseman himself to be waiting on the road ahead. Or was he lurking behind? He wanted to run, but now the bridge ahead worried him. Doesn't the horseman haunt bridges? Could he avoid crossing it somehow? It terrified him. Why? It was just a stupid bridge. The gloom beneath could have been the lair of a troll. Billy Goat's Gruff. Mama used to read that. The troll waits beneath for the fattest, sweetest goat. Jason thought he saw something on the far end of the bridge, a shape of some sort. He stepped onto the bridge and gripped the knotty railing. He felt the ground drop away beneath as he edged forward. His eyes remained on the shape. It's nothing. It's nothing. Is it nothing? No troll attacked him as he reached the other shore. 
The looming shape was only a stupid stairwell opposite the bridge that climbed up the hill and into the main cemetery. He turned left and ran, admitting defeat and letting the fear take him over. He ran southward down the long, dark road. His initial burst of adrenaline ran its course and he slowed, then walked again, limping a little. Headstones slipped past on the right. He still had enough light that he caught his reflection occasionally in the polished stone. He looked very young and very thin. He could feel his vulnerability as he walked along. He grew aware of his own body, the touch of his starchy dress shirt and his jacket and the soft weight of his backpack. He saw himself reflected in the headstones, just a container of warm fluids, flimsy work for a blade or a hoof or a sword. He felt shatterable and transient, and his next breath was not guaranteed, oh no. The leaves made a faint oceanic rustle all around. The insects sang their three-note songs. Jason Crane, Jason Crane, Jason Crane. Jason sang a wretched pop song as he walked, something about having no self-control and no bitches and not enough money. He sang it softly, absent-mindedly, as if reciting a psalm. He passed Reese, Finnerton, Bain, Ekdal, Forest, Black, Small. There, he saw the gate at the end of the road. But the gate would be locked, he remembered. He would have to climb the embankment and cross over the churchyard. He could see the spire of the church above and the weather vane spinning against the sky. He would rather climb this gate than face that churchyard, but the spikes on top made leaping the fence impossible. Okay, just be quick. Something caught his ear, a brittle, clipping sound. He scanned the crest above and saw a horse silhouetted among the graves. It looked to be tied to a branch of the locust tree. He had heard its hooves as it shifted from foot to foot. It rustled somehow. His breath caught. He forced himself to be calm and rational. Some Halloween thing, maybe, for some event. He found the stairs and ascended, sideways, ready to bolt if necessary. He watched the horse, but when he neared the top he saw the rider, standing upon the shallow depression of the horseman's grave. The figure was motionless, a dim shape that absorbed light and gave nothing back. He could make out the shape of the boots and the legs and two arms held away from the body, palms down. Just a man? But the cape of the thing was not normal. It contorted painfully, twisting in the air even though the wind wasn't blowing. It wrung itself and billowed and whipped slowly, as if the figure wore a wave torn from a black ocean. And above its shoulders, is he headless? Is he headless? Is he headless? 